This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $1,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $2,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash iFreaks. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 157 of the iFreak Show. This week on our panel, we have Andrew Madsen. Hello from Salt Lake City. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, Matt Henderson. Hi, everyone. Do you want to introduce yourself real quick, Matt? Yeah, yeah, sure. So I'm a program manager on uh, the Azure App Service team, so uh, working at Microsoft on cloud and making it easy for people to build apps. Right, and the reason that we're talking to you is because Azure App Services has offerings for mobile apps. Correct, yep. App Service is sort of a synthesis of some products that we built over the years, uh, originally we had a thing called mobile services that was quite successful for many years. But it's our offering that's targeted at you know making it easy for mobile developers to actually you know focus on their client applications, but very easily talk to things in the cloud. So work with data, log users in, and send push notifications back to the devices. Gotcha. I'm kind of curious what is different about this from some of the other offerings out there. I know Parse just shut down, but it seems like there are other backend as a service offerings that do some of these things. Yeah, and it runs a whole spectrum. So in the mobile space, you have everything from, you know, okay, we're going to set you up with VMs and have some, you know, server frameworks to help you out. to what we do, which is more of a platform as a server. So, you know, you're not really worried about the underlying infrastructure. You just focus on writing your code. And then you have some things like Parse would be considered more of a mobile backend as a service that's, you know, a little bit less control in terms of the code. But, you know, certainly if you give up a little of that control, they do a couple things for you that are really nice. So it, it runs a whole spectrum. One of the nice things about the way we've kind of built ourselves out is that, you know, on the app service side, you know, it's a core platform as a service underneath. But then on top of that, we're setting up these services so that you don't have to necessarily write a bunch of uh, backend code if you don't want to. But as soon as you want to dive in and take more control, it's totally available. So essentially what you're saying is that you have offerings for mobile apps where the developer doesn't necessarily have to know C-sharp or Node.js. They can just kind of plug into something that's more or less pre-configured, and then you have some options that you can configure from there. And then if you really want to have the fine-grained control, then you can write the rest of your backend logic with C-sharp or Node.js. Exactly. Yep. I kind of want to get right into it. I, I've never used Azure App Services, although I've kind of heard that it's out there for a while, but I have used Parsed, and I think a lot of iOS developers are sort of in the same boat. I don't know, for one reason or another, Parse was sort of the big name that a lot of people were using, and of course now it's been shut down, but or is going to be shut down. But Parse was pretty cool, right? It gave you, you know, you configured some stuff on your Parse account, you didn't have to write any server-side code, and then it gave you this really nice SDK that you could use in your iOS app that sort of did all the, all the heavy lifting and putting your data in the cloud and syncing it between devices became really easy. So does Azure App Services offer something similar? Is there sort of a drop-in SDK that you can put in your app? 
yeah, so it's, it's the same model, and, and it's probably worth pointing out, you know, with the parse shutdown and everything like that, uh, we do actually have a, an option for running parse server on app service. So we've got everything plugged in with our input infrastructure and everything like that, so that there's actually just a gallery package so that you can go and just provision a full parse server up and running with everything pre-configured, and then you just have to use the parse data migration tool and then, you know, pull in the data from uh, from your MongoDB, and then uh, you're off to the races. So that's certainly an option if folks are actually looking to move off of uh, Parse. Uh, App Service is a great host for it. Uh, in addition, when we talk about our own you know, service that we have outside of Parse, the uh, server side, we have SDKs, as Chuck mentioned, in Node.js uh, or C Sharp. But on the client, we have all of your favorite mobile platforms covered. So we do have uh, an iOS SDK as well as Android. Uh, Windows uh, cross-platform with Xamarin and Cordova, and constantly expanding that as well. So you mentioned all of them except for, I don't think I heard some of the JavaScript core, JavaScript cross-platform ones. You mentioned Xamarin cross-platform, but not like React Native or NativeScript or any of those. Yeah, so that's something that we're still kind of looking at right now. We do have kind of just a raw JavaScript SDK. That's what powers all of our Cordova stuff. So we have seen people use that for, say, uh, web scenarios as well. But yeah, we're still looking at some of the other uh, cross-platform options that are out there. Uh, There's a lot of them now. Right. So if people want to get started, I know that kind of the sync, the data sync is one of the more popular backend as a service offerings as far as what people use. Because for example, I have an iPad mini and an iPhone. My wife also has an iPhone and an iPad mini. And so if we want to keep everything in sync across all of those, it's nice to have some service to be able to do that. But it looks like there's more to this offering. Um, I mean, just looking at the page for mobile apps, you know, you can do push notifications, you can do single sign on with Active Directory, you know, it also has social integration offerings. Is that kind of the full gamut of things? Are there more things that people can do with mobile apps? Uh, certainly there are more. So when we talk about offline data sync and things like that, um, a lot of times you're looking at things like structured data that you'd have in some sort of a you know heavy backend, you know, like a SQL database or say Mongo, but you know, also sometimes just regular key values, pairs and things like that. But, you know, you can plug that into uh, a whole variety of, of data providers. And one of the things we try and make it a little bit easy is, you know, when you're actually writing these APIs or these data sources, it shouldn't be actually a whole lot of cruft to actually integrate that with whatever you're trying to communicate with. So we wanted it to be a, a very light layer. But in addition to, you know, those kind of more traditional data stores, um, we do have things like doing file upload and things like that. So actually being able to do that in an offline fashion as well. Um, when we talk about offline, there's sort of, you know, three ways to interpret that. Uh, one is, you know, enterprise developers certainly um, have to deal with employees being literally anywhere sometimes uh, and not necessarily having, you know, availability. So that, that's one area we see a lot of uptake there. But we also see, you know, just general performance characteristics. It's a, a lot faster to retrieve data that you've cached locally than to make another round trip to the cloud. And then, you know, just general experience, like you mentioned, making sure that things are synced across devices uh, and so that, you know, it's very easy to jump between them. All of those are covered, I guess, in the the offline capabilities that we provide. But, um, you know, like I said, that is mostly for uh, traditional structured data and then now for file upload, although the caveat there is that the offline file upload is covered only in our .NET client SDK. Uh, we're working on expanding that. So I'm wondering, you said that you have libraries for mobile apps, and we're, we're talking specifically about iOS here. So what do the APIs look like as far as Swift or Objective-C? Right. So we have 
uh, you know, our library is actually fully open source, but that's currently written mostly in Objective-C, So, but just a bridging header away from being in your Swift app. In terms of the actual APIs, basically we have a client object that represents sort of your connection to the cloud. So you'll often see that as the mobile service client or MS client. And then we'll off of that, we expose the various capabilities we provide. So we have this notion of tables. That's what we mean by uh, all these different data structures that we can expose. So um, you would just say, you would grab a reference to your table and then you'd be able to do your basic, you know, create, read, update, and delete all off of that. We also then, all of our methods for, you know, logging in, making sure that your users are fully signed in. You mentioned it earlier, we have the full spectrum of, you know, Azure Active Directory uh, as, you know, more of a, an enterprise play, but then all the social providers, so Facebook, Twitter, Google, Microsoft account, those are all there. There are a couple ways you can do things like login. You know, traditionally, we didn't necessarily have all the provider SDKs that we do today. So there's, you know, mechanisms within our uh, SDK for, you know, providing a UI prompt, you know, showing kind of basically a Safari view controller and then having, you know, the entire OAuth dance covered within that. And then we'll sign you in. Uh, nowadays, uh, it's, you know, a little bit more strongly in favor of the provider SDKs. So Facebook has their uh, Facebook Connect SDK. In fact, they, you know, kind of require that for when you're on iOS and Android. You also see Twitter Fabric has developed quite a lot, you know, with the Twitter accounts already baked into the iOS platform, you can leverage those right away. So those are the preferred methods nowadays. So you would actually use those uh, libraries to get um, some sort of a token for your user, and then you would provide that into our SDK. Uh, and then we'll use we'll basically do an exchange with the backend and make sure that we have uh, credentials that we can use for every request that goes through. So then, you know, when you're talking to the various endpoints, you can protect, you know, certain tables or APIs that you develop in the backend so that, you know, they're requiring login or requiring specific users entirely. Um, and, you know, also get things like user information into the app. So start associating data with that user so they can sync it across devices or register push notifications that, you know, can be targeted at particular user. So we, we were at Build and have had a few Microsoft people on lately. And I actually have been using Azure mobile app engagement. And it's kind of interesting to me that the, some of these things are sort of split up. So mobile app engagement also does push notifications, although they're sort of focused on this idea of using push notifications to get users to engage with your app. But I, I sort of wonder about the duplication here and if that's something that if over time these things are going to merge or if there's a reason for the separation. Sure. There's quite a bit here uh, with the history of the products. We actually had an in-house product called Notification Hubs, uh, and that's actually what App Service typically uses today for push notifications. Um, so even if you don't want to use the App Service platform, the Notification Hubs product is available separately. But that's really good for you know doing large broadcasts. Uh, you can definitely do targeted individual user push notifications, but being able to address with a you know a single API call broadcast to, you know, millions of users and devices uh, and do that across platforms. So, you know, we sort of abstract away the differences between APNS and uh, GCM so that, you know, it's a little bit easier to work with, but also uh, you're able to register for different segments of notifications. So, you know, a user can specify certain interests within your app or um, you can use information that you got from the user's identity and calls to the graph uh, APIs that the various identity providers give you. You can then uh, actually say, okay, I actually want to send just to this se- section of the population and things like that. So that's notification hubs. And then you brought up mobile engagement. That was actually something that we got through an acquisition a few years back. And there's definitely been a lot to actually integrate the different products. And we'll continue, hopefully, to see some of that. But you know, the, the focus is slightly different, whereas notification hubs is a little bit more development side, making sure that pushes something that I'm going to 
interact with the server backend and things like that. I'm, I'm actually going to have maybe events in my app trigger those notifications. The mobile engagement product is a little bit more about you know making sure that different campaigns that you're running or you know offers that might be available within your app are uh, sent out. You get some analytics back so you actually know how those are performing, whether or not people are actually clicking on them, and you know what flows the users are taking through your app and how that's actually being impacted by your notifications. Uh, so that's there's slightly different focus there. We're trying to figure out how we can converge those better. So we did an episode with Thomas from Hockey App. Yeah, Thomas Domkey. And, right. uh, you know, is is there some interplay or, you know, some synergy between the two? I know that Hockey App was another acquisition, but it seems like, for example, the way that Microsoft has done things after acquiring Xamarin and then making it open source and tying it in nicely with everything else. I'm just wondering if there's other movement there to make all of these things kind of play nicely together. Yes, that's definitely a big push that you're seeing. And you mentioned Hockey App and Xamarin. Both of, you know, Xamarin came with its insights, Xamarin Insights product. We also have, you know, Hockey App providing some analytics. You have the traditional app insights that we've had uh, for a while now. You know, mobile engagement provides some analytics. There's, there's a lot of different ways of getting it. It's a common problem, I guess, within Microsoft is that, you know, there are multiple options for getting certain things done. Uh, and that's something that, you know, we've always been trying to address and continue to do so. So I expect that you'll probably see some some more work there, but it is something that we're definitely aware of. This is an abrupt change of topic and jumping back to something we were just talking about. But regarding the iOS SDK that you've got, and I'm, again, sort of comparing to Parse because that's just what I know. But I'm curious to know how you deal with, you know, how you do the data model in your app. So in Parse, you have these PF objects and you can subclass them and make those your sort of your model objects. What kind of data do you get back? So say you do a query with app services and you get data that's in the cloud back. How does that how does that look? Right. So you're going to basically have a you know some object that you've defined. We add some things on top basically to help make the offline handshake work and uh, you know, it's worth going into a bit more there. You know, so the offline data sync capability depends in part on the client SDK and in part on the server. So we do have a contract there. And on the client, you know, we'll be doing things like um, we'll actually be storing that by default in core data, but you could change that to, you know, some other store if you chose. But we'll actually be writing those objects in there and then basically queuing up all the actions that you do on the client and then replaying those back to the server. And so in order to make sure that everything stays in sync and that we can actually let you know when there's a conflict or something like that, we had a couple of properties, namely, you know, when was the object created? When was it updated? A couple other details like that. But otherwise, it's a just, you know, standard object. Uh, we don't necessarily force you to derive from uh, any particular base class or anything like that. So when we do our serialization off of the wire, we'll write it to whatever format you're expecting. Okay, so I imagine in iOS, that's probably just you just get dictionaries back then. Uh, certainly, you could treat it as a dictionary, yeah. But it sounds like you're adding you're adding other stuff. So that's actually something that is interesting to me is part of the appeal of a backend as a service like this is that if the SDK is good, you don't have to write all the code to sort of deal with the annoying low-level stuff required to you know make sure that updates get pushed when a network connection is available so that the app works well offline and deal with poor connectivity and all, all of that. Sounds like you do handle that stuff in the SDK. Yeah, we, we want to make sure, like with our offline story in particular, um, it is one of those things that in the history of computing has been tried many, many times with very, very opinionated frameworks that have, you know, all disappeared over time. And, you know, it, it's something that you keep seeing them pop up. Um, we want it to be as lightweight as possible so that, 
you know, while you're not actually having to do a whole lot of the heavy lifting, um, you can still decide, you know, like you just said, when the network goes down, that's when I'm going to do my sync or I'm going to, you know, have it prompted by user action. That's all, you know, within your control as a developer. So, you know, we're trying to make it very flexible, but at the same time, you know, there's no reason you should ever have to be writing those headers yourself. One thing that you brought up that is making me wonder a little bit within the the SDK, if there is a collision, say, on data. So I'm offline, but I'm using the grocery app that, you know, my wife uses. So I change the shopping list name to family list and she changes it to family. Does the developer determine how that conflict is resolved or is that something that is built in that you can override or how does that work? Right. So you can actually register a handler for that, I believe. And so what happens is basically the server will return back uh, an error. Your server-side code, uh, if you have that there, could stop it and say, you know what, I'm going to resolve things on the server. So that is, you know, developer control. Uh, And then, you know, your handler um, in the iOS code will actually be able to decide, you know, what do I want to do? So this is, again, full developer control. You could choose to, you know, prompt the user to actually, you know, figure out how to do it themselves. Or you could say things like the server always wins or the last write wins. There's a lot of different strategies and it sort of depends on the, the structure of the app in terms of what will actually be best. But, you know, we do want to make sure that's full control. But by default, um, you know, we'll just pop that handler. And uh, I think it's, I believe the server wins in the absolute default case, but I don't remember that offhand. Tell us a little bit about the offerings around writing your own backend. So you're not going to use the app services backend as a service stuff with your SDK. You just want to write your own custom code and run it on Azure. How does that work? How do you get started? Right. So uh, in general, we talk about with mobile, we have SDKs for .NET and Node.js. And those are kind of the more popular options for that just because, you know, that's where the, the greatest amount of support is. But app service in general allows you to write apps in a whole lot more languages, um, PHP, Python, Java, and a couple others as well. So you can take it as low level as you want, right? If you want to actually, you know, build your app in PHP, go for it. But with our uh, the SDKs that we provide, basically it boils down to those tables that I mentioned before. So, you know, there's uh, that API contract I mentioned. Uh, we have basically, if you're running... Uh, uh, in .NET, then we have basically a, an API controller overload that will actually uh, handle that contract for you. And basically, you're just setting that up and writing, you know, what happens when an insert occurs or what happens when, you know, we delete a piece of data. And same thing in Node. It's actually built on the Express.js uh, framework. So should feel pretty similar to uh, most of your other Node applications in terms of you're basically specifying this route serves as a table and here are the different actions in the same way. Okay, so I'm not a web developer at all. Chuck ah, is. Gotcha. Uh, and I, I may ask you stupid questions. But it sounds to me like, say you're writing a Node app, basically this gives you control over your web API, but you still can use the, for lack of a better word, word the tables that Azure provides. So you can still, uh, there must be an API so that you can still um, use all of the data store stuff that mobile apps is giving you. Is that right? Right, yeah. And so so when I talk about that writing these, to these SDKs, I mean, it's it's whatever extent you actually want. So... You know, if you want to run it as a, you know, full, just a standard node site that you might build, set up your web API, and you just want the push capabilities that we provide, you can actually use the SDK just to set up on, you specify the route and say, look, this is where you're going to register for push notifications. And, you know, we'll take care of making sure that integrates with the notification hub's infrastructure, make sure that all the, the right, I mentioned the segmentation earlier, those tags that specify what the user can receive notifications for, all that gets put in the right place. So, but otherwise, it's your application, just however you want to run it. So, we're trying to be 
not so opinionated. It's more of a, here are the capabilities and you can take them as you like. We do have templates that give you the whole cart, but it's very much just like writing a typical Node application. Cool. So one other thing that I'm always worried about when I'm looking at some of these services like Parse or Firebase or whatever you're looking at as a backend as a service, or especially with like push notifications and things where you're actually not just trying to deal with people's data, but actually getting their attention on their phone is security. So what what does the security look like on here? It, it looks like the single sign-on with Active Directory is kind of an optional thing you don't have to use. So how do you protect users' data and how do you protect users' data from other users? Right. So when we, uh, we're dealing with app service, you know, it's a service where you can run in more shared environments. So, you know, basically we'd be putting your applications next to each other with other users. And that is, that is the level you can go with. Um, and so we'd have the typical, you know, isolation boundaries that, you know, basically make the cloud work. But you're dealing with your own database. Um, so we'll always be having that set up. You'll be dealing with kind of your own segment of the world. And then we do have, you know, in the uh, other tiers, you basically get dedicated resources so that you're not sitting on the same VM as anybody else. So we do have, you know, kind of a range there. But uh, in terms of the data, you know, that's protecting it from other users on, you know, the cloud side, but, you know, from other users of your application, certainly with authentication, um, you can actually associate data to a given user. And basically that's, so, you know, we'll see people basically take a user ID, put that in as, uh, you know, uh, an entry as part of the data record. I'm not sure actually if I'm getting in the the direction that you're looking for here. but I, I think uh, so. I mean, so I've seen some folks, they segment data just by some database association. So, you know, it has the user ID on it or something, and then they manage it all in the app. But I was wondering if, for example, that works fine if it's shopping lists or something like that, where it's it's all pretty much homogenous data, right? It's a collection of strings, and they they all mean something a little bit different, but in the end, it it you know, it's not that big a deal. But then when you're servicing larger companies or more sensitive data like financial data and things like that, a lot of times you don't want it all just sitting in the same database and then, well, you know, let's make sure we always send the correct user ID back. I mean, that that's just a place where one misstep and you're giving somebody somebody else's information. And Got so it, yeah. I was thinking, I mean, I've seen different versions of database segmentation or setting up different databases for different clients or things like that. Right. And I think that one, setting up different databases is actually one that I've seen quite a bit of in terms of sort of these, you know, when you're talking about like multi-tenant applications where basically mm-hmm. you know, an entire organization or a collection of folks is using your app. So spinning up separate databases and basically the access to those databases is conditioned on, you know, a valid user being present from that tenant. And so basically you're, you're checking not only user ID, but also um, the tenant ID. Uh, and yes, I mean, the authentication there needs to be uh, rock solid. So if you're doing things like writing your own custom username password solution, that's very scary. It gets a lot better with some of the federated identity providers. And, you know, a lot of these more, um, you mentioned finance, you know, in some of these more you know, larger solutions. Yes, I mean, that is a key part of the application is just building out your security model. But for a lot of other solutions, you know, the uh, Azure Active Directory is, uh, you know, our in-house thing for uh, enterprises. So, you know, your entire enterprise could be its own tenant. And then when somebody's writing a multi-tenant application, they would say, okay, this company will get this section of data that they'll be working out of this database and things like that. And so that's actually taking a lot of the, the burden away. But you do kind of have to really be really careful in these scenarios. 
Now, I was a, an Active Directory slash Windows admin about, what, 10 or 11 years ago? So do you manage some of that through, I think they were group policies? Or is, is that part of Active Directory not the, the way that you would manage that kind of security? Uh, so yeah, it depends. So security groups are certainly uh, one way to go. So you can say that you know this particular security group is allowed to access this data, or you know you can even go further to you know a specific level of um, sorry. You can even go down to the user level um, and say that you know only these users explicitly. But typically, instead of doing that sort of as a, an access control list, the more common way is to create a new group within Active Directory and then rely on that. Yeah, that makes sense. But, you know, there's also this notion of roles that you can uh, assign. So it's basically saying, uh, look, you know, when this user logs in, they're going to be given this role in my application. And then, you know, they have these particular claims associated with them. They're they're able to access these APIs. And so uh, you can basically, instead of thinking about it on the, you know, it's this group that can access it, it's folks who currently are in this role can access um, it's a you know it's a slight difference, but it does allow for some nice dynamism in terms of you know who gets what roles and when. So that is another model that you can take. Now, uh, one other thing that I'm also thinking about is the security, just in the sense that I have been able to in the past set up a proxy or actually sniff the network and get information that's being sent over the wire or over the Wi-Fi. Does Azure App Services require you to use an encrypted connection? Yes, so everything's HTTPS. We have, you know, an SSL cert that comes with the, the app service. You can also bring your own. If you choose to have everything be done using your own, that works perfectly fine as well. I'm trying to think if I've got other questions. I think maybe we should step back just a little because I think we have been talking about this as if everyone listening already knows exactly what kind of thing we're talking about with a backend as a service and all that. So maybe it would be useful to explain why if you're a, a new iOS developer or somebody who's never um, had to do your own backend, why this is uh, – you know, something you should care about or why it's helpful. Definitely. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I mentioned us being, you know, a platform as a service. And so what that means is you're focused on writing the code that makes up your application, not in terms of dealing with the underlying machine machinery or anything like that. So we'll take care of making sure that the, you know, operating system gets patched on the machines that you're running on and all those types of things. And, you know, we maintain the actual web server infrastructure and things like that. So from the actual app building perspective, you're just writing a node app and you're saying, you know, where I could run that from my command line, I would just take that exact same code and then throw it up to app service and everything would be great. And, you know, we'll actually be able to we can scale based on your demand, right? So if your app isn't getting a whole lot of traffic, um, say you're still in the d- development cycles or perhaps you know your users are only active during certain times of day and things like that, um, you can bring it back down so that you're not having to have this huge commitment of underlying infrastructure. But you know as soon as we see that hey, there's a lot of traffic coming through or you know that we'll start revving things up so that you're always available. So it's not just you know, a simplicity of development model, but it's a simplicity of management. You don't have to actually be worried that your app's going to, you know, go down because, you know, it just got front page of Reddit or something like that or featured in the app store or thing uh, similar. Well, the other thing is, is that if you're using a system that does things the same way and you have a lot of people using them, then a lot of times it's easier to find the answers. And also the other thing, going back to the security discussion again, would you rather have some guy off of Upwork that you hired because you don't understand security trying to do your security for you? Or would you rather have Microsoft doing that and solving these problems across thousands of apps where they understand the web and the infrastructure so much better than you probably can or will? 
And I, I see both of those as positives. You know, I generally write back-end code in Ruby on Rails, and I have to constantly stay up to date on what the latest security practices are for it. Whereas if I'm using a backend as a service like Azure App Services, I don't have to worry about that because I can assume, at least to a certain degree, that Microsoft is doing their job to keep that up and patching all of the software that they're using and making sure that they've got the latest version of Node.js so that, you know, that's not an issue for me and I can just focus on writing the app and I don't have to be an expert in those other areas. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we're constantly making uh, sure that, like you mentioned, we have the latest Node versions installed. Um, getting all those frameworks underneath uh, patched in. I want to step back and remind ourselves that most of our listeners are not even Node developers. I mean, I've done some Node tutorials, but I know very little about it. And so to me, the attraction is I I can write my my app in Swift or in Objective-C, my native app that I know how to write. And when I need a backend or a platform that's in the cloud, I can do that without having to know web development. That was a big attraction for Parse. And so I think that's also a big attraction here. And then, I mean, another big thing is push notifications. If you have to add push notifications to your app and you don't use something like this, you've got quite a job ahead of you that requires knowledge completely outside of the world of, you know, Swift and Xcode and writing an iPhone app. Yep. If you want a custom setup, you can pay me to do that. I'm happy to make all that money. But uh, you're probably better off going with something that's already built that's going to cost you a whole lot less than my time will. Because, yeah, I've done that, and it's all—it's not even standard web development stuff, all of it. And so, yeah, just by having that available, I think it's a huge time saver for a lot of folks. Yeah, and, you know, in particular, um, one of my one of the things I, am, I work on specifically in app service is the authentication story. And um, it's certainly gotten a lot better over the years how we do authentication these days. But even within OAuth2, you know, a really modern framework like that, OpenID Connect, there's a lot of variability. If you're trying to learn how to write code, you know, use Facebook to log into your app, you know, that's very different than using Twitter or Google or any of these others, you know. So that's one thing that... Uh, has been particularly uh, helpful to a lot of developers is just not having to worry about things like, I mean, you know, authentication, it's tied to security. That's a big, scary thing. Yeah, it makes total sense. I'm also curious. I love the whole tell what it does and talk about some of the features that it has and talk about the advantages. But I also like the show part of show and tell, right? Where you're actually saying, there are companies out there that are using Azure App Services to do really cool stuff. Do you have any stories for us? Yeah, uh, we do have a lot of different apps that we'd love to talk about, but there's you know only so many case studies we have, and those are all available on Azure.com. But some of the recent ones, uh, Jet.com, big commerce platform, uh, they've you know been building out their website and things like that for actually going and uh, purchasing goods. 3M has used us for a couple of uh, internal applications, so you know having their employees actually be able to get a few things done. Same thing with uh, Transport for London, running the entire, uh, you know, London Underground. They're using uh, app service to have, you know, one of their mobile applications is actually going around and making sure that things are working as they're supposed to. So, you know, they have to be able to be, well, literally underground and uh, dealing with offline, but actually recording, you know, what's going on, where we need to do maintenance and things like that, and then sending that back up when they're connected again. So that's been a pretty cool one to see develop as well. That's really interesting. So are they using it for data syncing and for authentication and for all these other things, or are they just using bits and pieces here and there? So with Transfer for London, I believe they're using uh, the data sync and the authentication pieces, and I think that's the main bulk of it for them. I'd have to look up the yeah. full case study to, to, to be sure, but um, I've definitely worked with them on a few of these things, and 
Yeah. Yeah. My other question is, so let's say that I'm building an application and let's just throw it out there. Let's say I'm building an application for the podcasts and I want to keep track of what podcast people have listened to and what they've liked and all that stuff and give them the opportunity to share it on social media. How, how do I get started plugging in the pieces of Azure that are going to help me there? Right. So there's a couple of things there. Most folks tend to start with getting their data together. Um, and what they'll do is they will spin up a site. They'll get ready to start, you know, uh, really powering on it. But, you know, while you're in development, you don't want folks to just be pinging it. So you might set up authentication for the whole site so that just you can get into it. That's one approach people take sometimes. And then basically you start with you know, establishing what your data looks like. Okay, so you mentioned what people have liked and what they've listened to. So maybe records for those and things like that. At that point, you'd be picking, you know, what data source you want to use. Um, Commonly, people are going to use SQL for that. Storage of, you know, key value stores is also very popular. And then once you actually start, you know, getting that together, you can say, okay, instead of, you know, protecting the whole site with authentication, I'm going to say certain APIs I'm going to protect. And, you know, when I want to start associating data with a user, I have to make sure that whatever method I'm calling, that needs to guarantee me that that user is the one making the call, right? So that's where you have to start integrating that step. And so I would start, you know, you'd go around to your identity providers, get everything registered, and then plug it into app service, and then you'd be good to go there. That tends to be that the flow is sort of data, then authentication. Push notifications, I see that pop up all over the place if people start putting that into their app. So they might, you know, even in some cases start with it, or, you know, as you're kind of going through the data things, if, if some action that a user might take on data would prompt a notification, that's where you'd really start doing it, right there at the get-go. Cool. Do you have some kind of sandbox or test account if I'm thinking, okay, before I deploy, I want to run it through a battery of tests, but I don't want it to hit production? Yeah, so actually, uh, that's one of those uh, details for, I mean, app service in general, in addition to just being a good host uh, for your code, there's a lot of capabilities built into it that make it much easier to work with. So uh, one of the stories that uh, you know seems to really resonate with a lot of developers is, look, you're going to develop your code on your, your own box, and that's great, and you're probably going to check it into source control. So then, you know, we can actually deploy from that source control. So if you want to use GitHub or Visual Studio Online, things like that, you know, we'll monitor those repos. When we see changes come in, we can deploy that. We can actually deploy that to a, a staging slot that, of your choosing. So if you want to have a development environment that's sitting outside of the production, you know, thing that's serving actual traffic, um, you can do that. Then you can, you know, have tests against that, do full load tests, uh, or, you know, just, you know, have your client, your latest version of your native client, talk to it, make sure that everything's working. And then when you're happy with it, you can actually swap that dev and production environment immediately. So there's no downtime or any wait there. It's just one of them starts serving traffic and the other one uh, spins back down. So that's a really nice kind of workflow, right? I you know, try out a change. I push it up to my own personal branch. It goes into the staging environment. We test it and then we ship it to production. So a lot of the features like that are, are really quite powerful for, uh, for getting started. And uh, there's quite a lot uh, built into the platform. Uh, and, you know, folks want to try that out. We actually do have uh, an option for if you're not an Azure customer or anything like that, you can go to tryappservice.azure.com and uh, you don't need a credit card or anything. Just logging in with Facebook, Microsoft account or a Google account will give you a quick trial experience. So we'll spin up the resources for you and let you play around and kind of see what we have to offer. And so that's a good way of just kind of, if you wanted to see how things worked, certainly check out the documentation to see all those features that we have built in. The staging slots is just one of many really cool options. 
All right. I was actually going to ask you if there was a way for people to try it out. So you, uh, you nailed that too. Yeah, there we go. And, um, you know, even after you've chosen to become an Azure customer, like if you want to do longer development, there is a free tier in app service. So that's really good for, you know, as you're building the first version of your app, starting there, you don't have to worry about the, you know, costs of uh, standing resources. And then as soon as you're ready to go to production, you can move it up to one of the paying tiers. All right. Well, is there anything else we should have brought up about uh, Azure App Services, mobile apps that we didn't? No, I think that's a uh, pretty good coverage. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get to picks then. Andrew, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, I've got a uh, pick and then an anti-pick. I'll start I love with the my, anti-picks. Yeah, I'll start with my pick. So my pick is a just a project on GitHub called This Could Be Us But You Playing, which is a, a weird name. This is by Boris Bugling, also known as Neo Nacho, also known as Neo Nichu. He's got lots of names. Anyway, what this is, is it's actually a Ruby gem, and it sort of integrates with CocoaPods and makes it so that you can easily create a playground for any pod on CocoaPods. It also works with Carthage if you use that. But this is actually really cool because it means if there's a library that you want to try out in a playground, which is previously not that easy to do, it's possible, but it requires kind of some manual setup and some stuff that's not super easy. Uh, Now you just run this one command. You just say pod playgrounds and then the name of the pod you want. And it will create and open up a playground in Xcode and you can just start writing Swift code just like a regular playground that uses the library, the CocoaPod. And so this is something I've hoped somebody would do for a long time and I ran across this this week and started playing with it. And it's really cool and it works really well. So that's my pick. My anti-pick is pretty predictable. Nobody's going to be surprised, but I've been fighting for the last five days with it, and that's code signing and Xcode. I've been an iOS developer since day one of the SDK, and this, if anything, has gotten worse. I don't know why Apple can't figure out how to make code signing not such just not such an utterly horrible experience, but they don't seem to be able to. And meanwhile, developers waste hours and hours and hours and hours on it. So someday, maybe before I die, they can figure it out. (laughs) I've been walked through it twice by experienced folks, and I still don't get it. So it doesn't matter how long you're doing it. It'll and it just magically broke on Friday, just suddenly builds started failing on our build server. Nothing had changed at all. And I am now five days in still haven't quite figured out how to make it work again. (laughs) Yikes. <laughs> I think I, I think I remember you talking about that when we went and got ramen. Yeah, I think I did. <laughs> My build server keeps giving me errors. I thought I had it fixed over the weekend, and then uh, last night it acted up again. Yeah, don't get too comfortable, Andrew. <sighs> I know. <laughs> so uh, I've got a couple of picks. My first pick is if you're in the Salt Lake area, we went and had some terrific ramen on Friday. Andrew and I did. Uh, there's a place called Tasha's Ramen. I'll put a link to it in the show notes so that you can find it. It's up kind of toward downtown, and downtown Salt Lake, that is. It was so super good. So I'm definitely picking that. I'm also going to pick a couple of other things that I've kind of gotten into lately. One of them is a book. It's called Fully Alive by Ken Davis. It's a terrific book. I listened to it on Audible, which means I don't know how many pages long it is, but it's a five-and-a-half-hour recording, which, as far as those books go, isn't that long. So I'm assuming that it's not an overly thick book, but he talks about living fully alive and and living your life to the fullest, essentially, and talks about all kinds of different aspects of life. And I found it very inspiring. Some of the stuff was practical and some of the stuff was more inspirational. Uh, I think he hit a good mix, 
Um, it's not going to solve your life problems, but I think it gives you a good framework for figuring out how to solve your life problems and to identify some of the areas of your life where maybe you could live a little bit more fully alive. So I, I really, really enjoyed the book. And uh, it's definitely going in my top five books that I recommend to people. The other thing I'm picking is the Fitbit One. I have a Pebble Time Steel watch, which actually does fitness tracking. The problem is, is that I want to set up a treadmill desk in my office and give that a try. And I know that if I'm trying to type and walk with a Pebble Time Steel watch on my wrist, it won't pick up those steps. So I picked up a Fitbit One. I forgot how much I like the Fitbit dashboard on the web. So uh, definitely going to pick that as well. Matt, what are your picks? Uh, so I'm picking an album that I cannot get stuck out of my head, which is the original Broadway cast recording of Hamilton. So they've recently got a very large number of Tony nominations. It's a very good show, and uh, I keep listening to it on repeat and even just can't get it out of my head. I keep hearing about Hamilton. Have you seen it? No. I mean, those tickets are sold out for a very long time, but I know they're coming to Seattle in 2017. So looking forward to that. Oh, there you go. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap the show up. Thanks for coming, Matt. Thank you all for having me. We'll catch everyone next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. <laughs>